0: So let me read for us uh, Psalm 19. This is God's Word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sights, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of these words. Thank you that you are you are not only uh, that you are that you're not only just, just pointing us to to just uh, to look at at the scriptures, while we know that's of utmost importance. But you're also saying, "Look around you. I am everywhere in everything." And so, God, I pray that you would give us not only ears to hear, but eyes to see as well and to behold your glory. So God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, all of you, I'm sure, uh, are familiar with C.S. Lewis, and I think we're probably most familiar with C.S. Lewis uh, in that he was a writer, so he wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and so... We, we, we remember that. Um, he was also a sort of a, a lay theologian and apologist, and so we've read Mere Christianity, and we remember those particular things. And then we forget that what C.S. Lewis actually got paid for, his profession, was that he was a professor of literature at two of the, the top universities in the world, Cambridge and Oxford. And so he was a professional when it came to anything that involved words, whether it be stories or, or poems or any works of literature, uh, C.S. Lewis was your man. C.S. Lewis also wrote a book on the Psalms, and he called Psalm 19. This is what he says about Psalm 19. He said, Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. The greatest poem in the Psalter and the greatest lyrics in all the world. That's massive. And then Lewis goes on to offer us this structure of the psalm as well. He says there's six verses about nature, there's uh, five verses about the Bible, and then there are four on personal prayer. And if you were to look at that structure at first glance, it would, it would appear that none of those sections of this psalm have anything to do with the other. But if you look a little closer, like we're going to do this morning, obviously, you'll see that the common theme in all three of those sections is words. And not just any words either, but, but they're, they're words that we are called to live by. And so let's look at it in this way. One is the soundless word of creation. Two is the perfect word of the scriptures. And then three is the word at work in your life. So we have the soundless word, the perfect word, and the word at work. So first, the soundless word in verses 1 through 6. I, I'm pretty confident that I can say that we've all had the experience of, of being in awe of creation at some point in our life. Maybe it's, it's the sunrise on your morning commute to work that overwhelms you. Maybe it's looking out at the ocean on your summer vacation. Maybe it's, maybe it's the vastness of the mountains in the fall. Or maybe it's the overwhelming joy of a newborn baby, a new life that has been brought into this world. Regardless, we're moved by it. Something in us is experiencing some type of joy that for a lot of us is unexplainable, this awe. And the underlying underlying reason for this, whether you believe it or not, is that the creation is nonverbal communication that there is a God. As Tim Keller says, that you begin to understand when you're looking out at creation that the world is not an accidental collection of molecules, but the meaningful work of an artist's hand. So the awe that you are feeling is a hint toward the glory of God. That's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing this small hint that there is something greater in this universe that has created this beauty for you to look at. So one of my very good friends is an artist. I have one of his paintings in my study, and like mo- and he's, a- he's an acquired taste. If you've seen it in my study, you probably, in my opinion, probably you don't like it, um, but I like it. Um, but, but like most artists, artists, his artwork is very, very distinct. So when you see a piece of his art, you don't even have to look at who, uh, who, the, who, the, who the artist is in the corner where they signed their name. You would know that is Jared Life Brown's artwork. It's distinct. There's no mistaking it. There's no way that you can deny who the Creator is in his paintings. Well, Paul says in Romans 1, this is what is happening with creation. Let me just reread a little bit of that for us. Paul writes For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The artist, Paul says, the artist of creation is undeniable and deserves glory. Charles Spurgeon said, He who can look up at the sky above and then write himself down as an atheist brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. Why? Well, because verse 2 Verse 2 tells us, David, King David tells us, that creation is day and night declaring God's glory and proclaiming the work done by His hand. So day and night, the creation never stops declaring the glory of God. It never rests from declaring the glory of God. It never, it never ceases to do exactly what it was created to to do, declare the glory of God. That's why Jesus can say, if, if you don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. Because they already are declaring the glory of God. So how could you ignore it? How could you deny it? Or write it off as something else? Because if you walk outside... God is speaking. If you you look in the mirror at yourself, God is speaking. You are created by Him. You admire that newborn baby. I use that twice because we have a lot of them here. God is speaking. All are testifying to a divine mind that that lies behind all of them. So it's a continuous revelation creation doesn't stop declaring god's glory. We could say it never shuts up about god. And we can't get away from it. So it's continuous, but it's also a universal revelation. In Romans chapter 10, Paul actually uses Psalm 19:4 to show that all the world has received some kind of message from god. Paul writes, "And how can anyone preach unless they are sent?" As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Psalm 19.4 says, Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends... Of the world, so Paul meaning meaning Paul is saying to us here that it, what the meaning of that is when he asks the question, "Did they not hear?" He says, "Of course they've all heard, because they've experienced the soundless word of creation. But the one thing that's different is they have not all received it." So it's like if I arbitrarily call my kids in a crowd and I just say, kids. All the other kids in that crowd may turn and and look because they, they heard me say kids. They may turn and look, but it's only my kids who are going to respond to my words. It's only my children who recognize their father's voice. Well, in the same way, God is offering His call to everyone. It's a universal call. The call of God is open to every single person on earth, and He does that first and foremost through creation. But it's only His children who respond. It's only His children who recognize their Father's voice. So in Acts 14, Barnabas and Paul tell the Greeks of, of Lystra about the living God. They're, they're giving worship, uh, they're giving uh, credit to God and pointing them to this, this Redeemer. And the way in which they do that in Acts 14 is they point them to creation. This is what they say In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. That is not Paul and Barnabas strictly talking to the church in Acts, they are sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And they are saying, God is real, and the way in which you've seen God at work is through His kindness, by giving you rain, and giving you food, and filling your hearts with joy. All of that is from God. To which the theologian Wayne Grudem says, this allows us to say, and I would add, with confidence we can say this, that all persons, even the most wicked, have some internal knowledge or perception that God exists and that He is a powerful Creator. So what that means is that even those who say defiantly that I am an atheist, that I do not believe that there is a God, science can explain everything away, even those cannot deny that a God exists, no matter what they're saying. The artist cannot be denied by anyone or anything. But we must also admit that creation does come up short in regards to the, to the full picture of the gospel message. So w- without the Bible, only some knowledge of God is possible. So so Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have to hear the word of Christ in order to respond and believe. So it's why I titled our first point, The Soundless Word, and we titled the second point, The Perfect Word. Because while, while general revelation or nature points us to God's existence, it's the Bible, the perfect word, that tells us about salvation. So from verse 6 to verse 7, when you're reading this, David kind of naturally flows from from creation uh, to the Word of God. It's almost uh, that that David sees such an interconnectedness um, between God's creation and God's Word that he he doesn't need a transition in his poem. He doesn't need to make it. He sees it so clearly. But if you wanted a transition, you could look at verse 6 as this transition that David is making. When David is reflecting upon the sun, the S-U-N sun, with its beaming light and constant heat, David says nothing in all of the world, not one part, is hidden from the sun. Nothing can escape it. Everyone experiences it in every country across the world. And then he drops into verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. So just like the son, David is saying, the law of the Lord is searching and constant. Nothing is hidden from its sight and nothing can escape it. It's vast and it's intricate. And you can see that in David's description here in verses 7 through 9, which is this great example, because these psalms are poems, so this is this great example of of Hebrew poetic parallelism. So you have David here describing God's Word to us by using uh, six different nouns for God's Word. He uses six adjectives to describe it, and then he uses six statements to tell us what it does. And all of this, David is u- using to try to give us the fullest picture possible of the intricacy of God's perfect word. So it's like he's looking at the angles of, of a sword's blade before its use, and he's staring down its edges to make sure it's right and true. This is what David is doing for us uh, as he describes the Word of God to us. He's seeking to communicate the, the comprehensiveness of God's Word, we could say. And this is something the New Testament writers later pick up on as well. Um, in places like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says to Timothy, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then the author of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's God's word. And because the Bible is God's law, God's testimony, God's precepts, God's commands, uh, fear and rules, it is perfect, true, sure, right, pure, clean. It's all of those things, David says. And because of all this, God's word accomplishes much. Much. So David gives us six things that the Word accomplishes here, and I want to run through those really quickly. First, in verse 7, David says that the the Word of God uh, revives the soul. Or you could could translate that to say uh, that the Word of God converts the soul. The Word of God converts the soul, which simply means that the law of God turns you back to God. Constantly. So if, so if you are not someone who is constantly uh, putting yourself in the Bible, you are not being reminded that, uh, that the gospel is what revives your soul, that the gospel is what converts your soul. You're not being turned back to God continuously. So if you want life, if you want to experience having your soul converted on a daily basis... Immerse yourself in the Bible. Second, it makes wise the simple. So specifically, you are, you are being made wise to the true reality of salvation in Christ. This is how, this is how Paul says it to Timothy in Second Timothy 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writing, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Jesus so compared to the, the, the vast wisdom of God we're all simpletons we're all dummies when it comes to our need we don't understand our great need of salvation and so we are constantly in need of God's word to make us wise to this great reality of our sinful condition and our great need. Constantly. And it is only the Bible that can do that. Third, it rejoices the heart. Charles Spurgeon saw a progression with these first three descriptions of the Bible, that are of, yeah, of, of God's Word, that, that helps us to see the meaning. He says, uh, conversion leading to wisdom And wisdom leading to joy. Conversion leading to wisdom and wisdom leading to joy. To which he says, free grace brings heart joy. When We understand that we have received grace freely from God in Christ. Our heart will be joyful. And the only way that you discover that is in God's precepts, is in God's Word. Fourth, God, uh, the, God's Word gives light to the eyes in verse 8. And immediately upon study of this particular uh, phrase here, I think of Psalm 119, and that might be where your mind goes as well, when it says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So if you find yourself stumbling through life, however that might look for you currently, you may find that you are not using the lights of God's Word to guide you. I experienced this last night. I, have, I hate uh, printers. So if you ever want to get me a birthday gift that I'll hate, get me a printer. Um, it's I, always never working for me. And so I was troubleshooting it last night to try to print my sermon out and um, literally punching it with my fist uh, to try to get it to work, and the troubleshooter on, online was saying, the first thing they were saying was, check to make sure it's plugged in, which, it, mine was plugged in, don't worry, I'm not that dumb, but... I, reminded, I was reminded of that this morning as I was going back over my sermon to say that, that sometimes when we begin to experience sufferings in life and we, we, we experience heartache and, and sorrow and, and we feel distant from God, sometimes the best place to start is to say, have I been in God's Word regularly? Am I immersing myself in the Scriptures constantly? Am I letting it wash over my soul daily? That's the first place you should start, asking yourself that question. Fifthly, God's Word endures forever. And verse 9, and the reason we can say that the Word endures forever is because of what David says, it's pure. Pure. And those things that are pure will, will never experience any kind of brokenness or decay or rust. So throughout history, we, we, we've seen so many ideas and philosophies, even sometimes good ones, come and go. I mean, disappear from the face of the earth. Or become so, so, uh, so corrupt that they, uh, that they kind of get rid of themselves. None are lasting, is the point there. Because they are not pure. But the Word of God is the most enduring thing of all time. It's why Isaiah can write, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. It stands forever. It will never be knocked over. It will never be proven wrong or contradicted. Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 says, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So really, the only thing that is certain in all of life is the Word of God. Give us ears to hear, O God. Six, David says God's Word is altogether true and altogether righteous. And it's here in this statement of what the Word does that David begins to move into his own personal evaluation of of what of what God's word is is doing in his life so just saying it's altogether true and righteous uh, in verse 9 is not telling us anything about what it does but then David is is sort of arrested by the beauty of God's word in verse 10 to which he says it is more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This kind of poetic pause that David has, just to describe what he, what the Bible is to him. It's finer than gold that David had a lot of, and it's sweeter than honey. And then goes on in verse 11 to tell us these two last things that the Scriptures do. David says, By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let me just quickly unpack those. The third point is short anyway, so don't get concerned. But First, the one who knows God's word, David says, is warned by them. And what this means is, This means to know God's Word is to know truth from lies. To to know God's Word means to be able to discern what sin is and then how to avoid its temptations. To know know God's Word means to to have clarity about the lies and deceptions of this world. God's Word warns you. And then second, David says, the keeper of God's word is rewarded. Now, it, notice that the, wor- the wording there that David uses is not receives a reward. David isn't saying, hey, if you, if you read your Bible and pray every day, like the children's song goes, that you will receive this reward. You will, you will get a reward. And there's, some of that is true. You will receive a reward. But David isn't wording it like that. That is not his focus at this point. His focus is on the very word of God. So rather than saying receives a reward, the wording hints at the fact that by keeping God's word, that is the reward. Simply keeping it. Simply opening it up. You are receiving the reward right there in the word of God. And David makes the reward clearer to us in our final point, when he describes for us the word at work in our own lives in these final verses in 12 through 14. We're reaching a point where David begins to uh, apply what he has been learning to himself now. So he takes what he's been learning about, about God's soundless word of creation and God's perfect word found in the law and then he applies it to his life. And as he does that, it it leads him to do a couple of things. And he breaks it up kind of into two categories. The first thing that it leads him to do is that it leads him to a prayer of repentance. In verses 12 through 13. David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So David, through God's creation, through the living word of God, David is provoked by the reality of God's word to the subtleness of his own sin. Simply from being in the scriptures. And that his sin is is revealed to him by God's written law. So essentially, if, if you are not someone who is regularly in the scriptures, you will slowly begin to think yourself perfect. You will slowly begin to think that you do not sin. And the reason being is you are not having the law of God held up to your life and seeing the gospel proclaimed in all of its purity and in all of its brightness so that you can see that you are not worthy to stand before a holy God. It will begin to show you that you are in great danger because of your sin. And it will also remind you that there is a Savior who is standing there in your place. If you're not in the Scriptures, you won't think of that. You'll just depend on yourself. Constantly. Paul says this in Romans three twenty. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, through the law, through God's word, comes knowledge of sin. So the word highlights our sin. And when this happens, we run to God for forgiveness. And David says in verse 13, when this happens, then then I shall be blameless. Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. Because God forgives him, and God will forgive you as well. The second way in which David responds to God's word is an appeal. Look at verse 14. David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sights, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. So David is saying here in this final verse that the Bible leads us to our only hope in life and death, our rock and our Redeemer, who is Christ our Lord. Skipping all the way to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Paul tells us this, what David is seeing here in verse 14. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. that if you miss God's Word, or shall I say, if you choose to ignore it, whether it be in the creation or in His very Word here, you're not just missing out on some good reading. You're missing the One who is your Redeemer from sin. And the rock on which you can build your life and eternally be kept secure. Why would you ignore it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and right and good and sure and pure. And because of all of that, we can trust it. We can trust that you are... Uh, not only revealing yourself to us in your creation, which is obvious, but you're doing it even more so through your written perfect word. God, you are constantly pointing us back to our own need by, by putting the law in, in our faces, but also uh, pointing us back to uh, how you have provided for that need in Christ. So help us not to ignore it, but have ears to hear